You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On this week's episode, I have Sean McVeigh from Sean's Outdoor Adventures. We just recently, over the last weekend, did a scouting trip together in Wisconsin. We basically did some online scouting, and then we met up face-to-face, and then kind of went our separate ways and scouted a whole bunch of the Central Forest Zone area of Wisconsin. The plan is that we'll take another scouting trip in August, and then we'll do a hunt together in October. Both of us uploaded YouTube videos showing the results of our scouting trip, and in this podcast, we're going into just a little bit more detail about the thought process behind why we picked the spots that we wanted to pick uh, for scouting and sort of what we found and what our thoughts are based on that sign. So this map reading challenge, uh, fill me in and I guess fill the listeners in a little bit just on what kind of a history you have with the map reading challenge. What was the ideology behind that and what Mm -hmm. have you done, I guess, in the past usually with it? Okay. So I'll just try to give you a quick synopsis of how it developed when, uh, years ago when I was trying to, you know, produce more hunting videos for the internet, I was traveling to other States to, you know, hunt there. And in the state of New York, they, um, have the whole state broken in half in a Southern zone and a Northern zone. And they had this regulation when I first started hunting there, that if you did not use your buck tag, or any deer tag from the year before, you could use it the first four days of the northern zones hunting season. So, you know, I was trying to get as many bucks as I could in one year. And I was like, all right, I still got this buck tag left over from last year. If I go all the way to the northern zone, um, I can use it and and still use all the buck tags for this year. So it was um, it was about a five-hour drive for me, and I had no way of really – going up there very often. So I just started studying maps, trying to like, you know, narrow down on a potential good spot. And then I drove up one day during the summer. Um, I scouted for just like three hours and then drove all the way back. And that was sort of how it started to evolve. And I'm like, this is really a challenge. And um, when I first started to think about what what would we call this challenge i was like let's call it the four hour challenge you know you pick a spot at least four or five hours away from your house you drive there you scout one time you go back and try to hunt it but then i was like you know that's 
that's just not practical. And I wanted to make something up that everybody could do. So I, I kind of, it evolved into the key part was you're studying maps, aerial photos and topographic maps to try to narrow down um, a good hunting spot, which is something Garrett you've done anyway. You know, you, you, a lot of people do this. Um, I just, for whatever reason, I was just trying to build it into a little challenge to myself even to try to push my skills. So um, I started to say, all right, pick a hunting spot or a spot that you can hunt, typically public land that you've never been to, study the maps, try to pick out your top spots, go there, scout at one time, and then go back during the hunting season and see if you can score on a deer. And the whole point of creating this little challenge was for me to push myself to be able to look at maps and put myself in hot spots without ever having to be there. And now, uh, again, like I wanted to create something that the working man could really use in the sense like there's so many guys out there that they get to hunt on the weekends or maybe one day a week and that's it. And so they really have to push their skills to maximize those opportunities. And so I just was creating this thing that I wanted to present to people that they could challenge themselves with and um, it evolved into what we, what I now call the map reading challenge. And so I started to take people that watch my YouTube channel out on these challenge hunts. And um, it's, it's really what it is, is you pushing yourself. And I created a little scoring system just for the simple fact of, okay, you went out and did this hunt. Um, and let's say you harvest a deer. You know, let, we can give it a score now. And now you want to say to yourself, okay, how can I – how can I increase my score for next time? What do I need to do? So, for example, uh, in the scoring system, if you go and it's – I created it as a two-and-a-half-day hunt so that, like, let's say you get off work a little early on a Friday. You go to this spot. You hunt it Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, and then you leave and go back. So it's like a two-and-a-half-day hunt. So if you go and you harvest a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, let's say, that first sit, you get a higher point value for harvesting a deer on the first sit than you would if you harvested it on the very last one. So again, the whole thing was just to try to give your you incentive to be so razor sharp with your skills, like looking at maps and putting yourself in the right spot right off the bat. So that's kind of the the whole mindset behind the, the whole thing. Okay. And when you bring other people along to do these invite map reading challenges, how many guys do you usually have in a specific group? Yeah, so it's it's kind of changed over the years. The very first group I did, I just took three guys because I tried to keep it simple, and then um, and then in the, over the years, it kind of evolved into creating three man teams and having like three three man teams, sometimes even four. And um, you know, I typically have some some companies that give us you know products for prizes, especially XOP has been really good to us. Um, they give us a bunch of tree stands every year. So I kind of set it up that the team with the highest, you know, map reading challenge score, they get, they win the stands type of a thing. I also have, um, uh, King Camp has been a company that sends me a bunch of stuff. And so companies like that, I, I typically go to them and say, Hey, you know, I'm doing this challenge hunt with these guys. Can you give us some prizes? So I've had some prizes just for fun, you know, and, um, I have even thought of dropping off doing that because I don't want it to create the wrong atmosphere, but it, it just, it was just kind of for fun. But it seems like the main focus is the guys are just there to have a good time and get, get, it's like you get to be in camp with people who are passionate about hunting. And a lot of the guys that end up coming, 
they don't have that in their normal life. So it's something they really treasure and they've really enjoyed it. So um, typically to, to come full circle on your question, I, I've been having a, right around three, three teams, but I've also noticed that it's a bit of a strain on me because I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, whether it's necessary or not, I feel like I got to take care of everybody, you know, and I'm, I'm worried about everybody. I'm like, if, you know, if somebody gets a hit on a deer, I got to take care of it. You know, I got to help. I got to be there. So it's like, um, the more people you have, the more strenuous it is. So, um, when it kind of worked out now, I've been talking to you actually for a couple of years now, trying to see if we could work it out that you could do one with me because I know you do a tremendous amount of map reading. This is your style. This is what you do. And, um, and I'm so excited that this year, now I'm, I live closer to you, we're able to do one. And um, it's actually the biggest relief. Like, so you and I and and Shane are going to do one in Wisconsin. And I'm like, I'm so excited because I don't have to worry about you guys. You guys are seasoned <laughs> hunters. And, and, um, and it's just like, we can just go and have a blast and just see what happens. Um, so that's even opening my eyes to some changes. I think in the future... You know, I'm I'm actually going to do a couple mapping challenges this year. Uh, I originally wanted you to come on the one in Missouri with me, uh, but you have your elk hunt, so you couldn't do that. So I do have um, I have more guys on that one. That's going to be a couple couple teams probably on that one. But um, like the one you and I are going to do, it's just going to be three of us. So I think in at a minimum, I'll typically look at going out with two other guys making it three of us. Um, but, um, three seems to be, I, I like groups of three. That seems to be like a, a good fit for this type of stuff. Cool. And so Wisconsin was kind of the choice for our, uh, our map reading challenge that you, me and Shane are going to do. And yeah. so looking at the state of Wisconsin, there's obviously, depending on where you go, a whole bunch of different habitat or terrain types, similar to Minnesota. You can have the more bluff country in like the West and the Southwest part of the state, you got the farmland in the central part of the state. And then in certain areas of central and even the, the far Northern part of the state, you got more of that unbroken, you know, agriculture free big woods type of habitat. So was there, you know, kind of going into this, any specific habitat type that you were really looking to hit, or were you just trying to um, pick a spot that had a lot of land for us to be able to really spread out? Well, um, for the Wisconsin one, actually, if you remember, you picked it, you picked the spot. Um, cause I, I, used, I think I said, you know, you pick it and you just said, how about we do this particular area? So I kind of was just rolling the, with the dice in a sense, like whatever you thought. Um, and so my experience coming from the East coast has been like, you know, mountainous areas, a lot of areas that don't have agriculture, although I have done map reading challenges like last year we did one in ohio that there was some agriculture on the edges of certain areas of the public land um so i've i've had some experience with that but now out here like in the area that we're we're actually going to be hunting in there is some swampy type areas and i don't really have i haven't had the opportunity to hunt with much of that and um, i watched your video on it and I thought, man, those are some good ideas that you have as far as dealing, you know, utilizing the swamps to get away from hunting pressure and things like that. Um, that wasn't much of my thought process going into it because I haven't really been in those situations yet. But um, I do like I actually my kind of one of my my top spots um, it is it ends up being in a um, 
in a swamp right off the edge is on the edge of a swamp actually and um uh so that's that's actually new so i'm kind of going into this i was a little bit curious like am i going to do any good at all because this is so there's a lot of new terrain here that i haven't had an opportunity to hunt yet um but once we got up there and scouted it i was just excited you know i was excited to be out there um, I did see some deer sign, but uh, at the same time, I, I, you know, going back in hunting season, it can be a co- totally different world and with hunting pressure. And I, on my video that I posted, I I even had some people from Wisconsin commenting like, yeah, the areas you were looking at are going to be overrun, not overrun, but you're going to have a lot of hunting pressure in those kind of areas, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So kind of, I guess, like you referenced, I picked out sort of the exact spot, but I, for me, it was kind of like throwing a dart at a map type of thing. I wanted yeah. to try and pick a spot that I haven't been to because obviously that would give me a, a big unfair sure. advantage. And I knew that you had experience with big woods type of stuff before. Yeah. So I figured, okay, this is going to be, and I, I just feel like in general, big woods type of habitat is the most relatable to mm. viewers. You know, yeah. like there's definitely lots of guys who have, you know, either private land access or access to public land that has agriculture. But there's also a ton of guys that don't have that, that just yeah. have to really look at the topography, look at the landscape, the yeah. natural food sources, and, and try and figure it out. And I feel like the, you know, sort of the bigger hunting industry doesn't really have a lot of information on that. Yeah. So. And, you know, that spot you picked is so big, uh, just for the listeners, I was looking at an area that's probably like 30 miles away from you, not even knowing we were that far apart, or maybe 20 miles. I mean, it was really far. It would have taken like... 40 minutes to drive to where you were so then i just uprooted and got closer to the area you were but that's how big we're talking we're talking a lot of land so i'm sorry i kind of cut you off no that's fine so i mean wisconsin is kind of divided into forest units or forest zones and farmland zones and so the two major forest zones are the central forest zone which we were looking in and i don't really feel bad saying that because it, like you yeah, said there's so much land it's, it's not so like we're big. giving anything away yeah um and then the northern forest is vastly larger where mm. you i mean you, you, miles and miles and miles of unbroken timber yeah. um but also generally a little bit lower deer density and, and not as good nutrition and that type of thing and more wolves uh so yeah. uh we got that that central forest zone which has pretty much no agriculture unless you're right around the very edges of it right. and there's a lot of logging that goes on and you have just sort of rolling hills with a mixture of kind of that, you know, upland forest and it's the kind of stuff you'll find like grouse. in if you walk those, those logging roads, um, mm. in like October, for example, you can find those areas that have that nice young, like aspen or poplar regrowth after, uh, a place gets logged out. But then you also have some of those lower areas that it sounds like you didn't have as much of in Pennsylvania where you do have some of that marsh and swampy area. And some of my first memories of actual, actually going hunting, uh, were in similar type of habitat where, you know, I was like not even of legal age to hunt yet. My, I would just go out with my dad. Um, that's the type of stuff that we would firearms hunt in and basically just sit up on a ridge and, and wait and see what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really my only experience with that specific type of habitat. And I really haven't hunted it since I have, you know, kind of learned more about hunting that lowland area and really learning about how hunters typically will utilize a piece. And I feel like that type of habitat doesn't get the same kind of hardcore bow hunting pressure 
that mm-hmm. some like some other areas of the state might get. I think some of the more well-known farmland type of habitat tends to get more bow hunting pressure, mm-hmm. uh, whereas that type of more big woods type of stuff seems to get all you know a lot of firearms pressure. But it seems like, and I guess I can't say this with 100% confidence because I obviously don't hunt there a lot. Um, I would tend to think it would get less bow hunting pressure because it's harder to pinpoint what exactly mm-hmm. those deer are going to be feeding on in September or October when they're not mm-hmm. actually just, you know, walking out to like a cornfield or a bean field or something like that. Right. Now I have a question for you. Cause I, you know, when I was watching your video, I was hoping this is such big woods and it's not like there's any cities around that we would not have much hunting pressure, but you did come across some, some hunting activity, like stands, trail cameras, stuff like that. Yep. So what's your, what was your thoughts? Like when you came upon that, I mean, do you, are you concerned going back? I mean, no, there, there's no. going to be, there's, there's so many, there's so much land out there. Um, the thing that I've kind of noticed in scouting a lot of those marsh type areas, and it seems to be more and more prevalent as things like, uh, the hunting beast and, um, stories like from Andre de Cuesto and the hunting public when they hunt marsh type stuff. And as you know, kind of this whole movement has gained momentum over the past several years, it seems like more and more you'll find hunter pressure or hunter sign in those deep, uh, hard to get to places that typically in the, you know, maybe 10 years ago, didn't get hunted that heavily. Mm-hmm. And I think also the increase in quality of like mapping options, you know, you got Onyx on your phones, yeah. you got better GPSs. Uh, people are less afraid to go venture out into those type of spots. And so I think with that type of information, you tend to get more people going out into those areas. A lot of times when I'm just hunting around the twin cities, some of those really remote, like two mile back islands will have tree stands on them because the guys will think, Hey, that's a big remote spot. Got to have good deer sign. They'll get back there, find a bunch of deer sign and then just hang a stand. And I think what tends to happen is those more obvious looking spots that are really remote, get that hunting pressure. And then the deer will mm-hmm. alter their habitat or alter their, their patterns right. so that the stuff, the stuff that used to be good wasn't good because it was deep or hard to get to. It was good because there was less hunter pressure there. And so when that stuff gets hunting pressure, the deer will adjust accordingly. And then those guys end up just walking in a whole lot further than they would have needed to, to not see any deer, you know? (laughs) So it's like, whenever I find hunter sign like that, if there's also deer sign, a lot of deer sign, that might indicate to me that maybe the guy only hunts there during firearm season. He just puts that stand back there so that opening day of firearms, he doesn't have to worry about hanging a stand. He can just walk in there, set up, and be ready for his hunt. If there's no deer sign there, that might indicate to me that maybe that guy hunts there a lot during like archery season, Uh, Mm -hmm. especially if there's like a trail camera, like a salt lake or something like that. Then I know the guy's probably just planted there. Maybe he's got a couple stands like that that he'll just alternate in between. Um, So when I find that type of stuff, I, I won't even pay it any mind i'll just keep walking a lot of times not even too much further down the same transition line or the next island over you'll find the deer sign without the hunter pressure yeah yeah i was um very impressed with the deer sign that i was seeing like a lot of guys that especially younger newer well i should say newer hunters especially they focused a lot on like buck sign and stuff but i one of my favorite things to look for is just scat and like how much not just how much but like over time like older scat starts to get moldy and stuff and if you see that with real fresh scat you know the deer have been kind of visiting that over a period of time which is more of a good predictor 
then a buck rub that, you know, a buck was there once. We know that doesn't mean he'll be back or that he's is coming back, you know? And so, um, I really like finding areas with, with good deer scat. And I'll tell you, man, some of the spots I found really shocked me. Like I didn't expect to have that much, you know, the other thing though, the flip side, uh, I, I mean, so those, that's great and everything, but I'm also aware that sometimes deer like to winter in certain areas and they do kind of migrate back out of them when the, you know, when everything changes, when the foliage is up and everything. So I will be curious, you know, when we go back in the summer to take a look at it, you know, how much deer sign is still in some of those areas. So, yeah, you know, and that's why I like also to do these type of scouting trips once the snow has melted. Cause if there's yeah. still six inches of snow on the ground, really all you can see is that wintering deer sign. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing we, I mean, we still had some snow in some areas there when we scouted it, which I actually didn't expect cause all the snow had melted off here in Iowa. Um, but you know, I kind of, it was, I kind of wished we were there when it just after it was all gone, but at the same time it was still nice cause sometimes it does reveal like certain deer trails and stuff like that. Yeah. So on some of the stuff that you found, and I saw some of your Onyx screenshots on the video, so I kind of knew in general, you it seemed like you were focusing on topographic terrain funnels and similar type of, of things um, where you're going to have natural deer movement in certain areas because of how deer typically will move through that type of terrain. Um, so are, are you kind of uh, trying to bank on seeing deer movement from like a bed to feed pattern or because obviously when we're going, it'll be before the rut. So right. are you looking at those type of um, travel corridors in relation to either a food source or relation to bedding? Or tell me kind of how you look at that as a big picture. Yeah, so, okay, so we're, we were going to big woods. That I had no, There's nothing as far as agriculture in the area. And so basically I looked at the, the, the Ugh, can't speak the topography <laughs> and um i looking at that it's like okay how are the deer going to utilize this and so i kind of tried to lay out some waypoints to check what would be um preferred travel corridors with you know with nothing else considered and then when i go there i try to find the food source um what my experience over doing these map reading challenges over the years is you i mean you have to absolutely have to nail down some solid food sources you can't just hunt transitions i mean deer travel corridors because you could have deer trails but that doesn't mean they're going to use them during hunting season or it doesn't mean they're going to use them during daylight um, so ultimately you could have those travel corridors figured out but unless you have food it, it doesn't mean anything so when we went i was i was walking those travel corridors looking for food and i did see a good number of oak trees, but I also know from experience that it doesn't mean those trees are going to be producing acorns this fall. And so um, basically when we go back in the summertime, I'm hoping to be able to see some some nuts on the trees, you know, and to, to say for sure, okay, these trees are going to be dropping some. And even um, by late summer, a lot of trees do start to drop some of the early the early nuts. So hopefully maybe we'll even see a little bit of that. And that's going to actually, I prefer to do my summer scout for these in August because 
there are some oak trees that are already dropping and it seems like August is when deer begin to change their travel patterns and feeding patterns. So if you go before that, it's not particularly helpful because also you can't always see the acorns up in the trees. So August seems to be the earliest. And I don't like to go much later than that because a lot of states you're opening in September. So yeah. it seems like August is that sweet spot. But I, um, I, it's really crucial to find food. So that's the long version of the answer. <laughs> when you're looking at oaks, are you trying to pinpoint either whites or reds or any kind of other subspecies of those? I am ex I'm looking for mainly whites, reds. I mean, the only time I see deer eating reds in, in the early season, which is when we're doing this hunt, is when there's really not other good food sources because the reds are more bitter. And um, deer in a lot of the areas I've hunted – where there's a, a good acorn crop across the board, they ignore those reds uh, completely. So it's as if they're not even there. So when I'm out scouting, I'm not, I don't really pay much attention at all to reds unless there's just nothing else around. So I was seeing a decent number of white oaks. So I was just focusing pretty much on that. So that's kind of how I approach it. Is there any kind of giveaways or keys that you look this time of year to try and figure out if those whites are say of a certain maturity level, certain size, diameter, height, or are you looking for like acorn cups down at the bottom of the tree to try and figure out if a white that you see now might be producing in the fall? Um, whites are so unpredictable because they're, they do not produce every single year. Um, but I do look for a minimum diameter for the trunk. Like I'm looking for uh, a trunk that's at least, uh, I'm going to say 10 inches in diameter. I mean, yeah, it's possible that younger trees will produce, but I want to, I want a little more confidence than that. So I look for a tree that's at least, you know, I'm going to say like, you can see me cause we're Skyping right yeah. now, but you know, like 10 inch diameter, like a volleyball a, or a basketball type yeah, of diameter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A minimum of a volleyball is a, is a maybe that tree's only a maybe for me. Like, but basketball that's yeah, that I'm more confident with that now. Um, there isn't a way to tell here that I'm aware of here in March, if that tree is going to drop acorns in the fall. So that's why it's really important for us to go back. And I would suggest to anybody who's listening, if you're going out in the, in like August or whatever, bring a good pair of binoculars. Um, oaks are a little bit tricky because it's hard to see the acorns in the canopy. Sometimes it's much easier to see red oak acorns in the canopy with the binoculars but i bring the binoculars and i really look hard up into the tops of those trees and i really want to identify if there's food there uh, if i cannot positively identify it then i i don't put as much stock in those spots even if there even if there is nuts there that i just can't see so um for anybody listening i really it's it's so crucial to positively identify that there's food there because um, you could have all the great deer sign in the world, like in March, but if there's nothing for the deer to eat, that and they they're they're a creature that they, their existence is is bedding, which you know, resting, eating, and surviving, and and so that means they're not going to waste time going to an area where there's not food. So um, it is just the most crucial thing when you're hunting big woods to find the acorn trees that have nuts in them for this year, the year that you're going to hunt it. So, um, that's, 
so when we so just summarize basically what what I've just said and all that is I do like to walk the travel corridors based on topography because you know that I don't have any other information going into it. And then I'm just looking for food. Um, there's a lot of guys that hunt bedding areas and, and stuff early season. Um, I, I mean, hopefully we'll be in there before the hunting pressure gets too big. And so um, I, I do tend to focus more on the feeding areas than the bedding areas. But I do look for them. Uh, but it's not like... I know. I think you you were talking. We were talking, and you your one spot you picked up on that looked really good was maybe seventy yards from a bedding area. I didn't like um, set up a game plan to be sneaking in on a bedding area that close. Um, I kind of was looking more at transition areas that the bucks might show up at right before dark in that early season to maybe spar with their buddies. Um, so. Uh, that was my kind of strategy, and not, I'm not saying that it's definitely going to work, but that's what I was kind of operating on. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to kind of my own experience hunting a place last year in Hill Country where we had a really heavy acorn crop, and I was running trail cameras and also, you know, kind of hunting that area, trying to be mobile, and I was surprised how far into the season I was still getting trail camera pictures of deer moving through at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 1 p.m., mm -hmm. just you know, yearling bucks and does just, just out feeding in the acorn flats, nowhere near, you know, their bedding areas, just cruising and feeding because they didn't have the hunting pressure to really, you know, tell them to do anything differently. Um, I think kind of the, the mindset or the thought process behind the spots that I was trying to pick was that if you, if I can identify a bedding area and I can identify the, you know, the first oak trees next to that bedding area, if a deer does decide to get up right before dark and mm -hmm. if, if they stop at that very first tree that has acorns, what's to, what's to keep them from continuing to move on further into the woods? You know, they're going to just keep the, stay right there and eat at that first tree that has food. Um, especially mm -hmm. if it's in a nice secure area like that. Yeah. And so the challenge that I'm going to have with that summer scout is trying to balance my desire for going back in there. And like you said, verifying with binoculars that, you know, which trees do have acorns versus mm -hmm. my, um, my fear of doing that August scouting trip and getting my scent back in those areas that close mm -hmm. to the season. And I think, um, given that we're not going to hunt it until October, I'll probably be fine. Just, yeah, just spot checking, going fine. through fine. Yeah. Cause I mean, going through there once, that's not, in my opinion, going to be enough to, to change those deer's pat, those deer, uh, yeah. their patterns, especially in, in August, if I was going back there, you know, maybe two, three times over a week span mm -hmm. or something, uh, I probably won't put any trail cameras in close to those beds. I want it to seem as much right. as possible. Like I'm an anomaly. I came right. in, I left and that was just it. Um, yeah. so that when I come back in October, it'll be surprise is, is the hope. That being said yeah. though, I do want to, during that August trip also find some of the more similar areas like you were hunting and you were, or, that you were scouting and finding where it is more, uh, kind of open Oak flat type mm -hmm. of thing with those terrain funnels for the mornings. Yeah. Uh, those type of spots that I was finding on that scouting trip are easier to set up on evening sets. They're really yeah. hard to set up on morning sets. Yeah. So I'd like to be able to maximize my time and try and get some morning set hunts in that more open type of Oak flat habitat. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I saw some spots that really appealed to me, 
And as you saw, if you saw some of that video I put out, um, there were some like logging roads that were cut through there that actually, you know, could really make things challenging because it makes it easy access for other people. I don't, I, I really don't know. I mean, how much other human activity we're going to run into. So it could mess me up, but, um, but I don't want to dismiss the spots either because they were, if there's nobody really hunting in that at that time of year, they could really be good. I mean, a lot of buck sign and a lot of deer movement in those. There's a couple of travel corridors that just to, topographically set up really nice to get deer movement in a lot of different directions. And I really like those because when you have deer coming and moving from in different directions, that helps if the wind isn't in your favor for the, all the spots. And, you know, it, it just, if you mess up on a deer moving on this side of you, well, if it, there's still deer movement on the other side, you might get a crack at them. So I just kind of like that. So I don't know. And, and you mentioned the logging earlier there, that, that area too is the trees are painted up. So I know they're going to at least some, at some point be doing a select cut. It looks like. And so, um, I don't know how that's going to impact things come the hunting season either. So there's some question marks on it. I think that, area of the state my guess is that those logging roads might get hit more by like grouse hunters than deer yeah. hunters early season um and for the most part i think those type of guys are pretty much staying on the logging roads and not really deviating much off right and what time of year do they have grouse hunting in, in wisconsin to be honest i'm not oh. i'm not super familiar with it because I, I haven't really done it um the only memory the only vague memory i have of doing it when i was younger I want to say it was probably like early to mid October time frame. Okay. I remember like colored leaves or leaves just falling is kind of my okay. recollection, but I'm by okay. far an expert or by far, okay. by far not an expert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm excited. I, I thought the, some of the spots you had looked really good. And, um, now, and I was wanted to ask you a question too, when I was watching your video, um, were you, was that a deer trail you were walking on through the like the swampy area to the, get to that that island, or was that like a stream type of a thing? I I, I wasn't sure what it was. Um, no, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, or? yeah, I'm pretty sure they're they're trails. Um, yeah, that was just, pretty pronounced. They get yeah in that marshy type area. The the thing that makes them look like that and makes them look like probably more pounded down than they actually you know maybe are is the fact that there's water everywhere. It's not like there's just water in the places that look like it's a little stream like that. There's mm -hmm. water everywhere. So once that grass starts getting matted down when a deer walks on it, it automatically makes it look like it's a very clear stream like that, just because that grass is now subsurface. So it's, right. it makes it look a lot more pronounced than this, maybe a, a trail of the same usage on dry land. Okay. But it does make it very easy to, to pick out. And I think there are other, you know, there could be little streams like that that can make those type of make it look like a trail when it actually isn't a trail. I mm -hmm. also think beavers can make trails like that because sometimes yeah. you might see like if you're looking at an aerial photo or something, you might see like a pond or a lake, and you'll have those yeah. type of trails like going directly out from them. Um, and in those type of scenarios, it makes me think that they're very mm -hmm. less, a lot less likely to be deer making those trails. So you, mm -hmm. you kind of have to, I think, use some judgment. Um, yeah. in that particular area that I think you're of the video, I think you're referring to that was coming right off of a, a betting point, um, mm -hmm. with some tamaracks and it was leading right to one of those little islands with oak trees. So I had right. pretty high confidence that that particular one was a deer trail. Right. 
Now you mentioned earlier wolves as far as northern Wisconsin. Um, is there the, any likelihood we could encounter a wolf or um, any black bear in Wisconsin? Being that I'm new to the yeah. Midwest, I don't even know what we're I, dealing with. I, I did carry some bear pepper spray just in case when we went out, but I wasn't sure. I'd imagine there's definitely black bears around there. Yeah, um, that's what I would think. I, I don't think, and maybe somebody can you know message us and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's a lot of wolves in that area, um, yeah. unless you know like just kind of passing through type of thing. In the northern forest area, I think you're gonna there'd be a lot higher occurrence of wolves yeah. than where we were. Yeah. How about um, mountain lions? Any of those out this way in this general area that you know of? Not, not really. I mean, it's like okay. one of those things, like most states, where you have like a rare occurrence or story okay. or, or sighting or something like that. Right. But it's, it's not prevalent. Okay. Yeah, I'm still learning my way. I've I've only been out here about six, seven months or so now, so still new to me and um i'm looking forward to this this upcoming season and see how we do on this map green challenge i think it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah i bet it's exciting for you living where you live now because within you know six hours you got so many different habitat and terrain types in various states that you can now travel to you got the farmland in iowa southeast minnesota southwest wisconsin you got bluffs you can drive a little bit further get to the big woods or you can get you know um out west a little bit and more of that prairie type habitat yeah i am very excited and it, it just i mean i where i live i'm two hours from minnesota i'm two hours from wisconsin i'm two hours from uh, missouri you know i'm kind of like situated in a spot where i can actually get over the border in two hours to these states so i think there's going to be hopefully opportunities to be doing hunting in all of them as time goes on um, I know you even were, were mentioning maybe possibly doing a gun hunt in Minnesota, which would be pretty interesting to me as well. So um, I'm pretty much looking forward to what the future has here. Yeah, it should be exciting. I'm excited to see what kind of videos you're able to to put yeah. up and produce now that you're yeah. you have all this around you. Yeah. Uh, it'll be i'll be curious to see and you know and i don't know if you've done much of it but i've also been there's a lot more coyotes out here than where i I mean i had coyotes in pennsylvania but they weren't quite as prevalent as they are where at least where i'm out here in iowa and i was gonna maybe get into doing a little bit of that this summer maybe go out for some coyotes see if i can get one or two and and give that a try have you ever done any coyote hunting i haven't um the people that i know of that do it tend to do i think more in winter um, yeah. but I think they're, it's typically open season year round yep. for coyotes. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know a whole lot about hunting them in the summer. Um, yeah. I don't know really a whole lot about hunting them overall. The only one I've ever killed was deer hunting that yeah. just happened to have one walk underneath me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I was, I was joking around, I think on Facebook or something one day and it was like, it was probably like a few days after the hunting season closed, the deer season. And, um, I jokingly like, is it, is it hunting season yet? Or is it deer season yet? And then, and then, you know, people make all kinds of comments, but one guy was like, yeah, well, you know, you could hunt coyotes and this and that and the other thing. And I thought, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I will do a little looking into coyote hunting this summer. Just as I want to try to do a little bow fishing as well, which I had mentioned to you is maybe us doing like a bow fishing trip somewhere somehow. Um, so th- those are some things I never really had a chance to do coyote or bow fishing. And I'm hoping maybe this summer I'll, I'll get a chance to, uh, get out and, and do a little bit of that. 
yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have to stay in touch and make sure we try and get something like that planned. Yeah, that'd be cool. I've never gone out on like on one of those silver cart trips where they come jumping out of the water and everything, but I mean, um, I, there's a couple places in Illinois that advertise taking people out. I was, I was thinking that might be might be fun to try this summer. We'll see. Yeah, that does look like a blast. I've done yeah. it growing up in Wisconsin and a couple times since I've come to Minnesota, but typically it's always been either during the spawn for carp when they're just kind yeah. of rolling around in the, the muddy shallows, uh, yeah. or, uh, at night with the, the lights and, okay. you know, kind of just cruising through the shallows and through weed beds and stuff like that and trying to pick them off. Yeah. You know, and I had asked you, um, if you have to aim low, you know, because of the refraction or whatever it's called from the light. And, um, I think you said yes to that if they, you know, depending on the angle, um, but I, you know, one thing that I did, I took the kids to Disney. My wife and I took them to Disney like a couple weeks ago. And there was this one spot where we, it was like in Animal Kingdom. We were walking around. There was a hippopotamus completely submerged in water, but its back was sticking out. And there was a big glass wall where you could stand there and look eye to eye with this thing. I mean, it was probably about 20 yards away. And um, it was so amazing. Like I was looking at above the water at where its back was sticking out. And then I looked down at where its head was. And I mean, the thing looked like the whole, the whole hippopotamus looked like a foot to the side, just from the way that it, you know, it bends the light and everything the the water does. And I was like, yep. wow, that is amazing. Just how far it makes it look, you know, to the side from what it actually is. Yeah. It's definitely something you gotta get used to. Yeah. So like when you're, when you're, let's say there's a fish that's, 15 yards out there in front of you and about what it seems to be two feet down in the water. I mean, are you aiming like a fish length below it when you're shooting at it for something like that? Or like how far low uh, do you typically? Probably at least for that amount of depth and that, I mean, that's a, that's a fairly long shot for that, yeah. that deep. Um, typically the further out they are and the, the deeper they are, the more the refraction impacts it. I mean, yeah. straight down, you're obviously not going to have any kind of refraction. Right. And the closer they are to the surface, you don't get it quite as, as bad either. Right, um, right. Yeah, like you said, it's all about the angle. Right. That's cool. I'm looking forward to trying it. So what's your thoughts going into the map reading challenge for Wisconsin this year? I mean, were you what were you feeling like after we did the scout and we were driving home? What were you thinking? I thought I, I felt fairly confident in at least being able to see some deer when we go out there. Yeah. Did you have any feeling? I mean, you had a couple of good buck rubs, man. You had you found some buck rubs bigger than any that I found. So, I mean, what, what were your thoughts when you saw those? I mean, it seems like typically the the biggest deer sign that I tend to find in areas like that tend to be in those more secluded areas. Mm-hmm. Um, my expectation going into it was that we weren't going to find anything like super giant. Right. And I'd say like even some of the stuff I found was – was like you said, it wasn't bad. It definitely wasn't like yearling sign. Um, but I'd say there's probably nothing that was like, whoa, like jaw dropping huge either. Yeah. yeah. Which, which is, I think to be mostly expected. If we had yeah. a week where we were just, you know, putting on like a hundred miles out there, I think you'd eventually find some stuff where you're like, okay, yeah. this is where, you know, this, yeah. this stuff's bigger than anything else we found in the last four days type of stuff. But yeah. I mean, given the amount of time we had out there, I think it's pretty, pretty yeah. reasonable to find what, what we found, I think. 
Yeah, and I, and I we we talked a bit on when we were driving home too. Like, for me, going into a hunt like this, we're gonna hunt two and a half days. I'd love to get a three and a half year old deer better, um, but I'm not. I'm I'm you know, I'm not gonna just hold out the whole time for that. I think, if anything, maybe the first day. But then I, I mean, my starting point's a two and a half year old. I I won't. I won't shoot unless it's a wounded deer that needs to be put out of its misery, you know, and I feel like that's the ethical thing to do. I typically set the bar at two and a half for these public land type hunts. But I mean, going into it and seeing what we saw, I, I would be super happy with a three and a half year old deer. I know that some people who watch my videos, I don't know about for you, like I sometimes get some critics if they, if I shoot a three and a half year old or a two and a half year old, they go, oh, you know, you got to wait for, an older deer than that or mature deer, but you know, we're, we're talking an early season hunt on public land. We're actually going to, I mean, the hunting season is going to be open for a few weeks before we even get there. So it's not like we have the cards lined up to shoot a, a giant right out of the box. You know, I mean, really the, the rut is in all my years of hunting. I mean, the rut is when you're a public land hunter, the rut is your best chance of getting something that's, you know, four years old or better, it's really hard to have encounters with those deer. Cause you know, if there is any other hunters or pressure in there, those older deer, they know, as you referred to earlier, they, they bed up before daylight. And a lot of times they won't stand up till it's real close to the end of daylight. And so they're, they're, a, they're an animal that is very difficult to encounter on public land. You know, when you're three, three weeks into the season and nowhere near the rut. So that's sort of my expectation going into it. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems pretty fair. I think a, a public land out of state trip, I think for any kind of state where there is a decent amount of pressure, like most of the, most of the Midwestern states, especially some of the Eastern states, you know, maybe with the exception of Iowa, where you got to draw a tag that takes multiple points. I, I feel like two and a half is in general, a very reasonable you know, expectation for a lot of guys. Yeah. And, and one thing too, like I, I used to be hung up on getting, you know, the biggest buck possible, but I, what I found is I wasn't a happy person, you know, at the same time. And so I kind of said, you know what, I think it's time for me to just loosen up a little. And so I hunt hard. I do the best I can, but I don't like, I don't get hung up on the end of like my biggest thing isn't getting a five-year-old buck or, or whatever. It's like, I want to have a good time. And sometimes you have to have concessions and it's like, I, sometimes I got to give up the aspiration of that five-year-old in order to have a good time. And if I shoot a three-year-old, I'm super excited about it now because I've kind of eased up on that. I mean, we're talking two days of hunting out of state on public land in a place you may not get back to and stuff. So you know, it's just different expectations than if you have a farm and you've monitored all the deer on the farm for the whole year and you're only going to shoot this size of a deer. It's just, it's just different, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I'd much rather go to a trip like this and not shoot anything, but have a blast rather than, yeah. you know, go somewhere on my own and, and, you know, have a different experience. Like, like you said, you gotta, you gotta get out of it what you want. And I think for me, it seems like it becomes less and less about, like you said, the inches all the time and more about the experience. Yeah. And and the other thing too is, um, what we're doing is a test of skill. 
you know, we're, we're actually trying to push ourselves, you know, in our scouting, our digital scouting, the map reading and our, you know, on the boots on the ground in a very short amount of time. It, we're not paying somebody to go set up a tree stand for us, you know, like an outfitter and then go in there. I mean, it's just anybody who's listening, it's just, you got to have a different expectation when you go into this type of thing and you don't want to set your expectations as like the stuff you see on TV where they're hunting managed land and all that. It's just different. So go, you know, I'm encouraging people get out there and push your skills, you know, get yourself on deer and have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the main thing. So I'm looking forward to it for sure. I'm excited for our August trip and then, the subsequent hunt in uh, early October. Yeah, dude, it's going to be awesome. And and hopefully um, we might even get another hunt put together. Like you you mentioned, maybe doing something in Minnesota uh, closer to the rut. That would be fun too. So yeah. I'm, looking, I'm glad. I'm actually excited that I live closer. So hopefully we can get some more projects going on regularly, you know, each year and, and uh, just see how we progress over the years with it all. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that'll do it for this week's podcast. You can find more content from Sean on YouTube at Sean's Outdoor Adventures. You can, of course, find my scouting video at DIY Sportsman on YouTube. As always, thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes for the Sportsman's Nation. Like the podcast network on Instagram, Facebook, and please share with your friends.